The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 52, to the chief musician, a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. Good stuff there. Okay. um, While I'm looking for our sermon text, which is towards the end of the Bible to Peter, it's uh, chapter 1. I'll tell you that I said this before we opened, uh, that I'm very grateful for having done these particular uh, sermons that we're doing, these doctrine sermons, because I haven't had to really study on Monday. Mondays are usually very, very long days. I start early. It takes between 9 and 12 hours to type a sermon. And these doctrine sermons, I can type off the top of my head in an hour or so. But I feel guilty about that. So I've been filling my Mondays. I have, She's seen. She comes home, and I'm still working. I've been filling them with other things. So uh, just so you know, I haven't been taking my Mondays off and playing billiards or something. But it, it's been a real relief. And the reason why I'm bringing this up now is because I would hope that you all would begin to pray again for sermon typing because I'm starting Deuteronomy typing tomorrow, and it's going to start being very long, difficult Mondays again. So just keep that in mind. I'd appreciate any prayers with that. But here we are. We're in uh, 2 Peter. We're in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. I want to read to you. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were witnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. When I first typed this sermon, I had a cheesy joke to begin us. You would have thought it was funny and you would have laughed, I'm certain of that, but it would have also been the one thing that you remembered above all the rest of the sermon. And that is why I usually will not include jokes in a sermon, 
Nothing of real value is conveyed by them, and yet it is the one thing that will stick most in your memory. I know this is true because I watched many, many Adrian Rogers sermons. And of all of those great Adrian Rogers sermons that I listened to, the jokes he began his sermons with are what I still remember. That's actually rather sad. While typing my commentary on 2 Peter 1 verse 17, I decided that citing the substance of it would be a better use of our precious time. That verse says, for having received from God the Father honor and glory, such a voice being born to him by the excellent glory, this is my son, the beloved in whom I was well pleased. This verse, like the account of Jesus at his baptism, teaches us a lesson in the nature of God. Though the word translated as born is a commonly used word, it is of note that it is the same word used in Acts 2, verse 2, which is translated as a rushing mighty wind. In other words, the excellent glory refers to the Holy Spirit who transmits the word of God from God the Father. He does it in written form through men of God in 2 Peter 1.21, where the same word is also used there. And he does it in open displays of glory, such as on the Mount of Transfiguration and when he came to the people of Israel at Pentecost. In this, it is seen that all three members of the Godhead were demonstrably present at that moment. Peter says the source is God the Father. The excellent glory is the Holy Spirit conveying or bearing the word, and Jesus, the beloved Son, is the recipient of the honor conveyed in that word. It is a rather marvelous display of the workings of what we would call the Trinity, as the members of the Godhead harmoniously interacted for us to more fully understand God's nature. This same basic proclamation was made upon Jesus twice during his ministry. The first time was at his baptism, as is recorded in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, and also in the parallel passages of Mark and Luke. It says in Matthew 3, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The words of Peter in his epistle confirm that he and the others were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his apostles, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's Matthew 16, 28. In all the three gospel accounts, the transfiguration immediately followed this statement, indicating that this is what Jesus was speaking of. The occurrence was like a note of deposit for the apostles to reflect on and to stand by when times would get tough. Peter uses this to assure us that what he says is both true and reasonable. There is a God. Peter calls him the Father. But Peter also refers to the Son. And Peter speaks of the conveying of the Father's word by the excellent glory, indicating that a third member is present and actively accomplishing a part of what is going on. The Christian concept of God is that of a trinity within the Godhead. There is, in fact, one God. The Bible, and indeed simple logic, tells us this. We saw that in previous sermons. Despite that, the Bible also refers to God in a way which reveals that he is expressed in a triune manner. However, because the Bible never mentions the word trinity, it is claimed that the idea of a trinity is not reasonable. 
But such a statement is by itself unreasonable. A doctrine, idea, or concept may not be named in a text by using a particular word, but it does not mean that the concept is not fully fleshed out in another way. For example, you will not find the term original sin in the Bible. However, it is implicitly taught from the very first pages of Genesis all the way through to the final words of Revelation. It is also explicitly stated in another way in the 51st Psalm, which Jim opened us with today. Likewise, I know it's unreal that those things happen, but they keep happening. Likewise, the word rapture is not explicitly stated in the Bible, but it is a concept clearly taught there. The idea of the rapture first comes from a Greek word harpazo, which signifies to be snatched up suddenly and decisively. This state of being snatched up suddenly is said by Paul to be an action accomplished by the Lord, and it is for the explicit purpose of changing the redeemed of the Lord from their earthly bodies to heavenly bodies. In this action of being snatched up, there is a transformation from a state of mortality, pain, sorrow, and physical death to a state of immortality, health, joy, and eternal life, which is exactly what the word rapture implies. Rapture means intense pleasure or joy. Therefore, the word does not translate harpazo, but it does explain what the harpazo initiates. The two are not synonymous, but they are complementary. This event, the rapture, is clearly laid out in exquisite detail by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And yet, People skip over them as if they're not even written down, and their defense is to say, well, the word rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. We do these things because of our own faulty logic, we do them because of presuppositions, or we might do them because we want to show that we are more knowledgeable on a subject than others, even when we are not properly trained or versed on it ourselves. This is certainly true with the doctrine of the Trinity. If we want to deny for whatever perverse reason the nature of God as is revealed in Scripture, then we will use faulty logic to meet our goal. I say this because the Trinity is what Scripture reveals. Because it is, sound interpretation and proper logic will inevitably reveal the precept. The same Bible that teaches that there is one God, that there is original sin, and that the rapture really will happen also gives us insight and revelation concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. Our text verse comes from Zechariah 12. It is verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, the first I is the Lord speaking. So there you've got all of that information in one verse of the Bible. For those who deny the Trinity, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, Zechariah 12.10 is such a problematic verse that a literal rendering of it is simply ignored, and a margin note is inserted into it instead. The Lord, who is clearly presented as the one and only God in Scripture, is speaking in the passage. He says that he will pour out the Ruach, or the Spirit, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, without the rest of Scripture, the meaning of Ruach could be debated if it is referring to the Holy Spirit or a general spirit. 
Scripture elsewhere, however, does answer what is being referred to. It means the Holy Spirit. After that, the Hebrew says, And they will look on me whom they pierced. However, God is spirit. You can't pierce a spirit. And so apart from accepting the Trinity, this makes no sense at all. Because of this, a margin note citing variant readings of the verse is used by disbelieving Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others in their translations, thus changing the text to read, and they will look to the one whom they pierced. That safely allows them to continue on in their otherwise incoherent and incorrect theology. This is all the more so because the verse immediately goes from the first person, common singular, me, to the third person, masculine singular, him, twice. The obviously correct reading is me rather than him or the one. The reason for this is that the very difficulty of the use of me sets it apart as otherwise impossible unless it was truly inspired. In other words, the reading is so obvious as to what it proclaims that it would be impossible to accept unless it was exactly what God intended. However, because there is a variant reading, the doctrine can be dismissed as an aberration. Unless all of Scripture is laid out and analyzed in order to come to a final resolution of what is being conveyed to us concerning the nature of God. Obviously, all of Scripture cannot be analyzed in a short sermon, but we can at least get a reasonable grounding in what Scripture says concerning this precept, and we will attempt to do just that. The mystery of the Trinity is, in fact, revealed in God's precious and sacred Word. And so let's turn to that precious Word once again, and may God speak to us through His Word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. I have five separate thoughts for you today. The first is monotheism. One God. Malik Jabbar says, All of the monotheistic religions, which primarily include Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, are mythological representations of the natural environment. The ancients fashioned their spiritual concepts as mythical copies of natural phenomena, the environment, and its interactions. They pictured the sun as the ruler of the universe, the life giver, the conqueror of darkness and cold, the scorcher with its intense fire, the compassionate with its soothing heat. When the sun triumphantly appeared on the eastern horizon at the dawning of the day, the whole universe, from our earthly perspective, was seen bowing in submission to the greatest of all lights. All the stars and planets of the higher and lower heavens were vanquished without trace at the dawning of the great sun god. The physical reality is the true seminal generator of our religious rituals in reference to an omnipotent conquering God evolved from the custom of the ancients. What Jabbar says here is both irrational and incoherent. It is an attempt to explain away monotheism. If man were to make a religion based on natural phenomena, which has happened innumerable times, he would certainly not be a monotheist. The sun god would be one of many gods, and this is what has occurred as religion has devolved throughout the ages. In the 19th Psalm, David skips over the created god Jabbar proclaims and exalts the god who created the very sun who was supposedly the object of reference in his confused analysis. Here's what King David says in Psalm 19.1 and then verse 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Verse 4, in them 
he, meaning God, has set a tabernacle for the Son. David understood that the Creator is above, not subservient to or a part of his creation. However, liberal theologians have twisted the evolution of religion, turning it completely upside down. It is evident from the historical record in the worship of God by man that the most ancient belief is that of monotheism. From that point, worship has devolved into polytheism, animism, and so on. Not the other way around. A seriologist, Stephen Langdon, states the following. The history of Sumerian religion, which was the most powerful cultural influence in the ancient world, could be traced by means of pictographic inscriptions almost to the earliest religious concepts of man. The evidence points unmistakably to an original monotheism. The inscriptions and literary remains of the oldest Semitic peoples also indicate a primitive monotheism, and the totemistic origin of Hebrew and other Semitic religions is now entirely discredited. The region of Samaria, which Langdon cites, is where many of the early Bible figures find their homes. Then it is the record of these early people by those who descended from them who have given us the pages of the Bible as breathed out by the one true God. From the first page of the Bible to its last, the idea that there is one and only one true God is proclaimed. And this goes in both directions, meaning from the top down and from the bottom up. From the top down, God speaking to man. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. In the book of Isaiah alone, this claim is explicitly made almost a dozen times. And from the bottom up, man speaking to God. You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Yes, the Bible proclaims that there is one God, but reason and intellect tell us this as well. We can know that this is true simply by thinking things through in a rational manner. Of the 12 first principles, points 8, 9, and 10 reveal this. First, point 8 states that a necessary being cannot cause a necessary being. This is known as the negative principle of modality. It is undeniable. Only one necessary being can exist. Any being which exists apart from a necessary being is contingent and could simply not exist. It is not necessary. This is self-evident. Now, I want you to think about this here. Necessary being cannot cause a necessary being. I'm a necessary being. I'm God. If I create another necessary being, then he has something that I don't possess. Everybody see that? There can only be one necessary being. Anything else that God creates, meaning all of you and me and all of the universe, cannot be necessary. Because he's necessary, that means we are contingent. He did not need to create us, okay? Point nine then says that every contingent being is caused by a necessary being. This is known as the principle of existential causality. The fact that there are contingent beings necessitates that a necessary being, meaning God, exists. We exist. All of us here, we know that we exist. I think, therefore I am. Okay? We exist, therefore a being that cannot not exist must exist. The principle is undeniable in and of itself. And point 10 then concludes that a necessary being exists. 
This is the principle of existential necessity. Contingent beings exist, all of us here, right? Therefore, a necessary being must exist. The principle is reducible to the undeniable. We did not need the Bible to come to these conclusions, and yet we logically came to those conclusions. The Bible does not argue for the existence of God. It proclaims that he is. It is our responsibility then to contemplate this God and to logically and rationally consider if what it presents is true or not. I say this because other texts, such as the Quran, also proclaim that there is a God. But does what the Quran teach us about God reflect the truth of God? If so, then we should all become Muslims. If not, then Muslims are following a false God. How can you know unless you think these things through? The Quran teaches that God is a monad, a single God who is not part of a Godhead. But how could a being that didn't understand fellowship create anything beyond himself which fellowships? He would be completely contained within himself. The twelfth first principle, the principle of analogy, states that the cause of being cannot produce what it does not possess. If God does not possess and thus understand fellowship, he could not create that which fellowships. The principle is undeniable, and the precept which comes from the principle is irrefutable. Because of this, the mere fact that you and I, all of us here, are social beings confirms a plurality within a single essence, such as a trinity. As a demonstration of the soundness of the doctrine, early church fathers, even before the compilation of the various books of the Bible, taught the doctrine of the Trinity in their writings. They didn't just pull this out of the wind. Rather, it was handed down to them directly from the apostles. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was a personal disciple of John the Apostle. In other words, he knew John, and he learned directly at his feet. He said the following, O Lord God Almighty, I bless you and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and forever. What he wrote was from a clear understanding of the specific roles within the Godhead. Tertullian, who lived during the second and third century, was an African apologist and theologian. He wrote a great deal in defense of Christianity, including on the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's what he said. We define that there are two, the Father and the Son, and three with the Holy Spirit. And this number is made by the pattern of salvation, which brings about unity in Trinity, interrelating the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are three, not in dignity, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in kind. They are of one substance and power, because there is one God from whom these degrees, forms, and kinds devolve in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such writings are not easily dismissed because these people were right there at the beginning of the Christian faith. It is true that there were many heresies early on as well, and so even early writings have to be analyzed in light of Scripture itself. It is through Scripture that we find the final authority for the teaching of Trinitarianism. As Scripture reveals only one God, and yet Scripture reveals a trinity within the Godhead, then true Christians are Trinitarian monotheists. Unfortunately, 
The idea of the Trinity is so dismissed by cults, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, that they are trained to claim that what mainstream Christians believe is actually a triad within a Godhead, not a Trinity within the Godhead. But this is certainly not the case. The difference between a triad and the Trinity is the difference between the finite and the infinite. Everybody understand a triad? Here's one God sitting on this chair, here's one sitting on this chair, and here's one sitting on this chair, and they're all ruling. That is not what the Bible teaches. A triad speaks of three gods, which is a logical impossibility. The Trinity speaks of one God in three persons, which is what the Bible proclaims. There is a fullness to God, which Scripture then reveals, not of two or four or ten persons, but three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Bible is God's revelation of himself, and as it is the ruling guide of proper faith, we would be ignorant at best and found false teachers as well, should we deny what it proclaims. But this doesn't mean it's an easy concept to understand. Scholars have struggled with it all along, and we continue to do so. John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. This may be true to some extent, but just because we cannot fully comprehend the triune God, it does not mean that we cannot at least explain how he can be triune and what the aspects of each member of the Godhead will be like. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He's glorious and almighty. To him we give our praises and in him are found our boasts now and forevermore there before the glassy sea. In him is all majesty and all power, in him all glory now and forevermore. For all eternity and from this very hour, our God we shall praise, for it is he our hearts adore. Holy is the Lord our God, yes, holy is he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whom we adore. And so to him we trod to the shores of that glassy sea, where we shall behold his glory forevermore. Our second thought today, one God in three persons, the Trinity. The Trinity is hinted at throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. However, it remained a mystery long hidden at God's prerogative. It wasn't until the coming of Christ that the mystery of this profound secret was finally and fully revealed. As Paul says as he closes out the book of Romans, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. As already noted, the doctrine of the Trinity states that God is threefold in person and yet together are one God, three persons in one essence. The term persons comes from the writings of Augustine, who agreed that it was not the best of terms, but as he said, rather than being silent on the subject. The reason he said this is because he could not be silent on the subject. Scripture is not, and therefore the Christian cannot be. The Trinity is revealed throughout Scripture as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, at one time or another, each of these persons is referred to either implicitly or explicitly as God. He has the attributes of God, accomplishes that which belong to God, and so on. And yet, each is spoken of as an individual person. 
As this is so, then there are individual persons, three being identified, who make up the Godhead. For example, each is stated as being involved in the act of creation. He is the creator. Each is referred to as being eternal. Both Jesus and the Spirit are said to search out the heart and mind, but that is what God of the Old Testament is said to do, and so on. Other such things as these, time and again, are attributed to the Lord God in the Old Testament, and yet there are things which are spoken of as being attributed to the Father, to the Son, and or to the Holy Spirit in the New. Either the Bible is filled with confusion, or each of these is God. When Jesus uttered the Great Commission to his apostles, he said the following, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, and this cannot be changed, this is what the Greek says, the word name is onoma. It is a singular noun. This means that the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are spoken of as one essence. Is that an aberration? Or is it something completely unique only to the New Testament? Or can we find parallels even in the Old? No, no, and yes. For example, Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema, or hear. It is the Hebrew statement of faith, which is faithfully repeated thousands of times a day by observant Jews ever since it was given to Moses 3,500 years ago. Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yehovah our God, Yehovah One. In this, it says, the Lord Yehovah is one. A cluster of grapes is one. The people Israel are one people. Both of these are made up of individual parts, and yet they are termed one. The word echad used in the Shema allows for this interpretation. There is another word, yachid, which means one and only one. It was used, for example, when speaking of Abraham's one and only son, Isaac. It is remarkable, but not unexpected, that Echad rather than Yahid was used in the Shema, because the Bible elsewhere reveals that the Godhead is a plurality within a single essence. But even though Scripture reveals this Godhead, is there any way of accurately describing it without being utterly incorrect in our thinking? A friend of mine said that the more you continue to talk about the Trinity, the more likely you are to devolve into heresy. And this is certainly true. Eventually, words can no longer explain every detail of what God is like, and we go running off into error. But that does not mean that we cannot form a basic concept of the Trinity, which at least partially reveals it without being incorrect. And yet, we have to be careful in attempting to do so. Throughout the ages, people have used tangible concepts to try to explain this trinity. One is to equate it to water, which can be like steam, liquid, or solid. Another is to take a circle and divide it into three equal parts. The egg has been used because it has a shell, a yolk, and a white. But none of these actually portrays the concept correctly. And in fact, if you use those, they will result in heresy. So, is there no proper analogy? Has God left us with a concept in Scripture, but no way to rightly contemplate it or explain it? Interestingly, a concept has been provided, and it is visible everywhere you look. It is beautifully explained by Dr. Nathan Wood in the book, The Secret of the Universe. 
I cited this in a sermon from Numbers chapter 6 that was over a year ago, so I know you've forgotten and you can pay attention, okay? It is useful and it is proper to cite it again here. He explains that the universe is made of a trinity of space, time, and matter. Further, each of these is a trinity itself. Space is comprised of length, breadth, and height. Time is expressed in past, present, and future. And matter consists in energy, in motion, producing phenomena. The universe itself is a trinity of trinities. But more, we can equate space with the Father, which is unseen and yet omnipresent. Matter with the Son, he's visible, tangible, and understandable. And time with the Spirit, which is unseen, and yet it is a medium in which we move and gain understanding. From that, Dr. Wood further defines a trinity using time as his primary example. He breaks it down into an understandable concept. After doing this, he changes only four words and thereby accurately explains the mystery of the Trinity as is revealed in Scripture. These are his words for the next page and a half or so. The future is the source. The future is unseen, unknown, except as it continually embodies itself and makes itself visible in the present. The present is what we see and hear and know. It is ceaselessly embodying the future, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. It is perpetually revealing the future, hitherto invisible. The future is logically first, but not chronologically. For the present exists as long as time exists, and it was in the absolute beginning of time. The present has existed as long as time has existed. Time acts through and in the present. It makes itself visible only in the present. The future acts and reveals itself through the present. It is through the present that time, that the future enters into union with human life. Time and humanity meet and unite in the present. It is in the present that time, that the future becomes a part of human life and so is born and lives and dies in human life. The past in turn comes from the present. We cannot say that it embodies the present, on the contrary, time in issuing from the present into the past becomes invisible once again. The past does not embody the present, rather it proceeds silently, endlessly, invisibly from it. But the present is not the source of the past, which proceeds from it. The future is the source of both the present and the past. The past issues in endless, invisible procession from the present but back of that, from the future, out of which the present comes. The past issues, it proceeds from the future through the present. The present, therefore, comes out from the invisible future. The present perpetually and ever newly embodies the future, invisible, audible, livable form, and returns again into invisible time in the past. The past acts invisibly, it continually influences us with regard to the present. It casts light on the present. That is its great function. It helps us to live in the present, which we know, and with reference to the future, which we expect to see. Now, Dr. Wood substitutes time with God, future with Father, present with Son, and past with Spirit, and the result is, and it matches exactly what the Bible teaches of all three members of the Godhead. The Father is the source. The Father is unseen, unknown, except as he continually embodies himself and makes himself visible in the Son. 
The Son is what we see and hear and know. He is ceaselessly embodying the Father. Day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, he is perpetually revealing the Father hitherto invisible. The Father is logically first, but not chronologically, for the Son exists as long as God exists and was in the absolute beginning of God. The Son has existed as long as God has existed. God acts through and in the Son. The Father makes himself visible only in the Son. The Father acts and reveals himself through the Son. It is through the Son that God, that the Father enters into union with human life and so is born and lives and dies in human life. God and humanity meet and unite in the Son. It is in the Son that God, that the Father becomes a part of human life and so is born and lives and dies in human life. The Spirit, in turn, comes from the Son. We cannot say that it embodies the Son. On the contrary, the Spirit, in issuing from the Son into the Spirit, becomes invisible again. The Spirit does not embody the Son. Rather, it proceeds silently, endlessly, invisibly from Him. But the Son is not the source of the Spirit who proceeds from Him. The Father is the source of both the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit issues in endless, invisible procession from the Son, but back of that, from the Father, out of whom the Son comes. The Spirit issues. He proceeds from the Father through the Son. The Son, therefore, comes out of the invisible Father. The Son perpetually and ever newly embodies the Father in visible, audible, livable form and returns again into invisible God in the Spirit. The Spirit acts invisibly. It continually influences us with regard to the Son. It casts light upon the Son. That is his great function. He helps us to live in the Son, which we know, and with reference to the Father, which we expect to see. And that is just what has been evident since creation in the physical universe, and to which the Bible faithfully testifies to concerning the nature of the Godhead. Examples from the Bible. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Right in the first chapter of scripture, the terms us and our are used by the creator reflecting his triune nature. Again, in Isaiah, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. As we saw in our text verse, chapter 12 of Zechariah, still in the Old Testament, places all three members of the Trinity together in one passage, actually in one verse. The Gospel of John time and again reflects the relationship between the Father and the Son, as well as the Spirit. For example, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Remember that? They're asking, uh, we were saying that the Father is unseen, but is embodied and revealed in the Son. And he says exactly what that man came up with out of time alone. Exactly. Perfectly. And again, in John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. Exactly what Dr. Wood said would be the case with time. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world 
is judged. Next, Paul shows that he clearly understood God's triune nature. He alludes to it here and elsewhere many times in his epistles. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And again, in 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16, he writes, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life, gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Who is Paul speaking about when he says that God gives life to all things? God, obviously. But in Job 33, John 6, Romans 8, and 2 Corinthians 3, it is said that it is the Spirit who gives life. And who is Paul speaking of when he says the King of kings and Lord of lords? It must be the Lord God. And yet it is the same title which John uses when referring to Jesus in Revelation 19, verse 16. We could go on and on and on with this, but instead, we will go on. Oh God, you are our Father and we are your children. You brought us forth for your honor and glory. You have brought forth all the sons of men. We have become a part of your redemption story. It is you who begat us and to you we lift our praise. It is you who created so that we came forth to you. It is we who turned away for seemingly endless days, but you never abandoned us you who are ever faithful and true. And so, O oh God, our Father, bring us back to you. Turn our hearts to you so that we are right again. Lead us on paths that are righteous and true. Look with favor on your wayward children. Our third thought today is the first member, God the Father. God the Father is clearly acknowledged by all Christians as well as most cults and sects who use the Bible for their use as a reference. An unfortunate exception, of course, has come out of modern liberal denominations, which make up songs and hymns which have purposed a gender-neutral God. Such perversity has taken over many denominations. I'm going to read you a good and proper prayer, and then I'm going to read you a bad and contemptible prayer. And these are said in liberal denominations all over the world today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We all remember that if we grew up in church. What does it change to? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, all creatures here below. Praise God for all that love has done, Creator Christ and Spirit One. That is bad and that is contemptible. This gender-neutral trend is not how God has revealed himself, nor shall we. Regardless of such depravity, the texts as received from God for our Bible are in the masculine, and for that reason, we adapt political correctness in this matter at our own peril. God's word stands, though. Concerning God the Father, masculine, we read, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? That's from the Old Testament. And then from the New Testament, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. 
this verse from John 6 plus those earlier from John 14 and John 16, which I read, perfectly matched the description Dr. Wood made concerning the nature of the Trinity. God is one, and within the Godhead, there is the person and the role of the Father. Who is like the Son of God that came from above? Who can compare in splendid majesty? Where can be found the depth of his love when God reveals himself as such? How can it be? Great are you, O God, who came from the eternal realm and who for fallen men stepped out of eternity. We behold Jesus, our captain, he at the helm, and he is taking us to his place of victory. Hail the son who died upon the cross. Hail the one who died upon Calvary. In him is the triumph to the devil, only loss, for in Christ Jesus is God's perfect victory. Our fourth thought today, the second member God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This could not have been stated any more clearly concerning the nature of the Word, meaning the Son, and His eternal relationship with God. And yet, people perversely twist something so clear and so concise in order to deny the truth of the very words so meticulously penned by John under inspiration of the Spirit. I'm speaking specifically about the Jehovah's Witnesses who add in an article which say that the Son was a God. Go back and in the back here, I've got the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I've got bookmarks filled in that faulty translation of where they have manipulated Scripture and have twisted the Word of God. In his first epistle, John follows the exact same pattern concerning the Word. These verses, along with everything else John writes, are so absolutely clear concerning the deity of Jesus that it is without excuse to misunderstand or deny what he is saying. Here's what he says in 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Everybody thinking of Dr. Wood's words? They fit exactly what this says here. Later in Revelation, John quotes Jesus' own words, his own claim to deity. If the resurrection didn't prove it to us, he clarifies it to us out of his own mouth. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Of course, that is not Jesus' only claim to eternality and thus deity. There are many examples of it. However, we have to be careful that we only use that which is intended to be used in this way. The next verse speaks of Jesus' eternality, but it may not be in the way that you have thought or been taught. Here's what Jesus said. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you have heard that the words here translated as I am prove Jesus was claiming to be God because I have heard people say that in sermons, it's not that simple. The Greek reads ego imi. However, if you go to the very next chapter, the same words are used by the man that Jesus healed. Here's what he said. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. 
in this exchange, the man states, ego e me, just as Jesus did. He clearly wasn't claiming to be God. So we need to be careful to not swallow the wrong colored pill. Okay? The claim of deity in John 8 is evident from the construct of the verse, before Abraham was. Jesus was saying that he is before Abraham was. Thus, he preceded Abraham and must be God. It is also evident from the actions of the people based on the Hebrew or Aramaic which Jesus would have spoken, not necessarily the Greek used in the translation. How do we know this? The next verse, then they took up stones to throw at him. That's John 8, 59. The very fact that they picked up stones to throw at him testifies that he had claimed an existence which only belonged to Jehovah. Thus, he was being accused of blasphemy for which stoning was the penalty. And again, the next verse leaves no doubt. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Here, it is both what Jesus said and the reaction of the people that assure us that Jesus was claiming deity. Luke had no doubt of Christ's deity. Listen to how carefully he worded the following, which is a pattern seen throughout his writings. He says, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Either Luke was making a point for us to read and to understand, or he was an incompetent blasphemer. Next, Paul completely supports the deity and godhood of Christ Jesus. From Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In these verses, the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation of the Bible adds in the word other before the word created. In other words, it says, by him he created all other things. The word cannot even be inferred from the context. But more, it is incomprehensible and it's illogical to think that a created being could somehow create all things or create all other things. If you don't believe me, the New World Translation of the Bible is back there, and guess what? It's an older version of it. And so what did they do? They bracketed it, which is the same thing as in the King James Version, showing it in italics. So we're saying it's not in the original, but it's inferred there, which it cannot be. The Greek leaves no possibility for putting in the word other. But guess what they've done in the New World Translation of the Bible now? They don't even bracket it. They just include it in the Word of God. The sixth first principle, that of contingency or dependency, disallows that a created being can create anything. It says that contingent being cannot cause contingent being. This would lead to an infinite regress of causes, which is disproved by relativity. Science really matters, folks. Time, space, and matter came into existence simultaneously. The existence of each is dependent on the existence of all, and all are dependent both on a creator and a sustainer. The principle is undeniable. A contingent or created being cannot create or sustain anything else because it is already contingent. 
In theology, one plus one always equals two, and Jesus is the eternal God. The writer of Hebrews makes the exact same claim as Paul concerning God's sustaining power for the entire universe as being held in the person of Christ Jesus. From Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. No matter what else, the deity of Jesus Christ is not only fully supportable by the text of the Bible— but it is the only logical and reasonable conclusion that we can come to. It is through Jesus that the eternal God reveals himself to us. And it is the Holy Spirit who will, if we allow him, teach us the proper doctrine concerning the nature of God. This through the word that he breathed out. By the Spirit, I search out the things of God, things gloriously breathed out for us to search and see. For all the days upon this earth as I trod, I shall seek my God as his Spirit lovingly guides me. It is the word he has given through men selected oh so carefully that I can see what God has done even for one such as me. The words are given and they are presented so beautifully. Marvelous things are hidden there for us to search and see. Give us wisdom in your word, O God. Help us find those things hidden away so secretly. Open the treasures of your word, as in this life we trod. May your spirit guide us as we search to see. Our fifth and final thought today, the third member, God the Holy Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. In the Bible, the work of begetting sons is the job of the Father, but it is also the work of the Spirit. To attribute this to the Spirit, were it not the case, would be blasphemous. The Jehovah's Witnesses call the Spirit an active force, whatever that means. They have to make up a term for Spirit, which is completely unsupportable in order to diminish his proper role as the third member of the Godhead. But the Spirit is the one who searches the Godhead and reveals to us God's workings. 1 Corinthians 2, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Next, Paul, after talking about Christ the Lord, does a change-up and says in practically the same breath, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Either Paul is completely confused theologically, or he is as clear as a crystal in his claim. Christ is the Lord, the Spirit is the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord. Numerous other examples of the workings of God the Spirit are found in both testaments of Scripture. They identify him either implicitly or explicitly as God. Thus, the Bible reveals that there is one Godhead, which is then expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is God, but each expresses God to us in a different and yet understandable way. As we finish today, please remember a few things. The first is that the Bible both implicitly and explicitly shows that each of these three persons is God. As the Bible also says that there is only one God, then it must be that there is a Godhead comprised of them. Secondly, just because we don't fully understand a thing, it does not mean that such a thing does not exist. 
I don't fully understand my wife, but I am quite certain that she exists. It is illogical to make a claim that the Trinity is simply not possible because we cannot perfectly explain every point concerning it. If you think it through, there is nothing, there is nothing that we can fully explain, even the composition of a single atom. We can explain it to some extent, but the further we look into it, eventually we break down in our ability to define all that comprises that one single atom. Third, as you heard today, there is a logical and acceptable model for the Trinity that we subsist in at every moment of our existence, time. As this is so, and as it adequately reflects the Trinitarian model, we are not left completely excluded from understanding a principle that the Bible proclaims is true, but which is otherwise very complicated. And fourth, a monad God has been proven impossible by simple logic as revealed in the first principles. As a monad is not true, then a multiplicity within the Godhead must be true. That multiplicity is defined in the God of Scripture as not being two or five or 17 or 120, but three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such is God, and such is how we are to accept His revelation of Himself to us. Surely we praise our Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May you be blessed as you read the Word in the future, observing and accepting the Trinity. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to look into your word and to see the truths that are portrayed there. Certainly, it's a difficult word. It's a big word. It's a word that is very, very twisted by people. It is a word which is diminished by people. It is a word which is uh, treated irresponsibly by people to the point where those that are listening no longer have any valid understanding of who you are or what you have done or why you've done the things that you have done. And that's a very sad place for the people of Christianity to be in today. So I would pray that people would open their minds and their hearts and their eyes to the truth of your word, to get into your word and to forget all of that church nonsense that is out there and to just bask in the goodness and the, the glow which radiates out from this word given through inspiration of the Holy Spirit through men of God. Lord, may it be so that each one of us will hunger this word all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Okay, I have a closing verse for you from Isaiah chapter 6. It's verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And now that I've given you a closing verse, I have a question for you. This is a very easy one. One of you is going to get it. I know it. You are. Which psalm speaks specifically about the Lord having begotten a son. Who said that? Like right there. I knew you got a Maserati. Yay. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Would you like to come up here for a minute? Come here. Come here. She gets the keys. To the, I mean, that came out so quickly. I didn't even finish the question. Come here. I want you to do something for us. Okay. I want, you, I want you to read Psalm 2 for us. And make sure that you are in this box right here. There she's in. Okay, go ahead and read that, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers 
Am I? Yes. Okay. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress, and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's uh, vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled by, by a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. I don't know how I could read this without glasses. You did wonderful. <laughs> did marvelous. Oh yeah, well she the car stays here. She can she can come she can come in and drive it around in the church, okay? All right, you just come in anytime. I'll give you a key and you can drive it around in the church anytime you want. That was I didn't even finish the question and it was out. I hear this too and I'm like, "Who's that arm goes right up road?" There you go. Wonderful stuff. We'll go ahead and take communion now. Um, what are we going to do? Communion. Wow. Yeah, that was fantabulous. Did you know that um, 2 Peter 17, 117 was, was And I didn't plan that either. I woke up this morning and posted and I said, isn't that odd? I, I'm going to talk about that today. That is so odd. These things keep happening again and again. It's almost spooky how these things keep overlapping. Spooky and spiritual. Yeah, well, I mean spooky in a spiritual way. That's what I meant. Yeah. 